I'm Emily Thede, author of This Vicious Grace, coming in summer 2022 from Wednesday Books. And I'm Anna, a teacher and a writer in the Query Trenches. And you're listening to Basic Pitches, where we... Two basic pitches... Break down the basics of writing and being a writer. where I like to start an episode is with people giggling because it's a really great way to enter an episode. Hello, Lily Lanoff. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I've already, you know, been a dork and that I think helps people feel like, oh, I'm doing a podcast with this person. It's going to be just fine. She's awkward. I am very awkward too. So this, this will go great. <laughs> We love it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so Lily, you just had a book come out March 8th, correct? Yes. International Women's Day and Disability Awareness Month. What? Yes. Who scheduled that? Okay. So there's a long, not really a long story, but One for All was initially scheduled to publish on March 1st. And uh, which is a perfectly fine date, except that it is the Disability Day of Mourning, in which, uh, this is, sorry, this is a very uh, dark and depressing topic to begin our uh, podcast conversation on, Um, but it's a day of mourning to acknowledge um, all the disabled people who have died by filicide um, or have been killed by their caregivers, Um, Mm -hmm. and recently, because of all the deaths um, during COVID of disabled individuals, the event has really taken on a more general meaning of just mourning all of yeah. the lost people in our community. Yeah. And I reached back out to FSG and I said, listen, I know that authors don't decide their publication dates, especially not debut authors. I get all that. Is there any way, any way that we can change the One for All Publication Day? The next Tuesday is International Women's Day. Wouldn't it be fitting for the gender-bent reimagining of the Three Musketeers to be on International Women's Day? And they're like, yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> oh um, yeah, no, FSG and Macmillan, like, well, wonderfully done. It was, it was, I was so worried about it and thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to think that I'm so obnoxious and so needy but they were very understanding and you know were even thankful that I had let them know that what March 1st was and I think that moving forward they're going to try to make sure not you know to kind of schedule um books by disabled authors like not on that day I mean I'm I I can't say that for sure but I think that um I think that moving forward they're going to try to avoid that at least which is good that is a wonderful wonderful thing I love that they listened, right? They heard this and they, you know, sometimes they, like you said, they don't listen to those things or they can't or whatever. So I'm really, I'm really grateful that that happened. What an awesome, awesome thing and an awesome opportunity for you. And like such a thoughtful thing. I love, I don't know. I'm, I'm at a place where I love knowing that people are thoughtful about things that they're just not like, okay, whatever. It's that way. Mm -hmm. I just, I also felt like I wouldn't be able to celebrate the launch fully. And I, and I, and I think it would be a lot to ask of the disability community to celebrate it with me. Right. Um, you know, just feel wrong. I mean, and obviously there are a lot of awful things happening in the world and it doesn't feel like a very celebratory time to begin with. But, um, you know, I knew very far in advance that what March 1st was. So um, I'm glad that I was able to, that we were able to work that out together and right. um, have the outcome be that it published on International Women's Day. That is fantastic. Um, so how has debut year been for you? How has it been treating you? How are you doing? Have you been having, I asked you this earlier, but have you been having fun? Uh, and yes, uh, fun, terror, excitement, <laughs> all the emotions. Um, I think that because I want, I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old and I, that really never changed. And, you know, I remember being very confused about why people's ideal jobs and professions changed in my classes. I remember, you know, like kids coming in one day saying they wanted to be the president. And then the next day they said they wanted to be an astronaut. 
And I remember thinking, why? Like, why are you changing around? Don't you have, don't you know this one specific thing that you love more than anything else that you want to dedicate <laughs> the rest of your life to? Uh, I was, I was a very intense child. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know how lucky I was back then to already know so concretely what I wanted to do. Um, but in the lead up, and now that it's published, it's this is the culmination of my biggest dream since I was five years old. Yeah. It's been a little over two decades. And it's just a very surreal experience. I keep on looking at the books and my author copies to make sure they're still there and they're <laughs> disappeared into oh. because it just it doesn't feel real that they're actually books and that it's actually happened that I, I I try I'm a very um I guess pragmatic is a good word for me I'm very you know realistic with things I like to dream a little bit and then I back off because it's like no mm, you know not not to do that but like sometimes I think about that moment of holding you know, my book in my hands. And I can't imagine ever describing what that feeling is that it's there, especially since you knew at such an early age that this is something that you wanted. I still don't know what I want. Um, I know I want to be published, but you know, tomorrow that could be different. And I am that kid in your class. <laughs> now that there's, a, that, there's nothing wrong with that. Again, like I, I recognize the fact that I was a lot as a child. <laughs> Um, like brought a notebook with me everywhere underneath one arm. It was very, it was adorable until it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. So can you tell us a little bit about your book? It is one for all. Yes. Yes. One for all is a gender bent reimagining of the three musketeers in which a girl with a chronic illness, and that chronic illness is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is POTS for short, even though it's not known as a diagnosis at the time. I explained in an author's note that that's what it is. Um, but this girl with a chronic illness uh, trains as a new kind of musketeer and uncovers secrets, sisterhood, and self-love. And that is my alliteration. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, it's a... It's very much more of a reimagining than a retelling. I don't, I didn't, I didn't want to try to attempt to uh, completely, you know, mimic Dumas because, I mean, you can't mimic Dumas. Um, <laughs> right. It's like, try to mimic Shakespeare, try to mimic Dumas, try to mimic Austin. It's like, okay. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it's the heart of the story is 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 the three musketeers and um tanya my protagonist is inspired by d'artagnan who um what is the protagonist or was the protagonist of the three musketeers i just had a moment from our conversation earlier that pronouncing her name <laughs> i was like and as soon as you said it i was like that's why it's tanya you dork <laughs> I love it oh my gosh it's one of those like my brain just caught up and was like oh okay cool I love that thank you no the names the names were hard also because I mean it's I mean the three musketeers is not straight historical fiction it's historical fantasy like Dumas is playing around with dates and times and places yeah. and stuff his Paris is not actually Paris of the 17th century uh but and I wanted to continue along with that in one for all but um it was fun trying to figure out the names of all the characters because we have Portia who's Porthos and Arya who's Aramis and Altea and Tea who was initially named Altea um in um my like earlier drafts but then her name changed, so she was a bit more distinct from Arya, um, and she's uh, Athos. Um, but the fun thing about those names is that they're not French, like Athos, Porth, Porth like those are like Latin. Yeah, names. those are Latin names. names, right? They're not, they're not French. So, and they're not the actual names of the musketeers. Those are their nicknames. Uh -huh. So 
I was like, great. So I had to try to figure out French names that are at least a bit historically accurate for the 17th century that sound exactly like names that are not French. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I love your dedication to the source material, right? Like your dedication to studying that and seeing Mm -hmm. the layers that are there and then also recreating that with a young adult, modern, but not modern for the book, you know, like modern readers spin. And that is so, that is just so like deep. Like that is a lot of effort and research. I love that. There's so much, there's so much research in one for all. I mean, I, gosh, I can't even, can't even begin to count up like the amount of hours I spent researching. Um, And I mean, I did have a bit of a head start because I started taking French when I was six, I think, and I took it all the way through elementary, middle, high school, and then half of college. So okay, had the foundations for a lot of the French language and French culture already, but all the historical elements, I had to do a ton of research, which was extensive. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the research that is in your book? I mean, you don't have to go. I know there's a lot, but like, how did that, you know, we haven't had anybody on the show really talk about research and how that affects their book or you know we've we've all joked about how we do like an hour of research for one line that's going to be deleted anyway but other than that can you talk about how research plays a factor in your book yeah um so (laughs) trying to like it's just it's uh, trying to think about one for all without research is impossible because there's so much research in it um I was very lucky to start writing one for all while I was still in undergrad in college. So I had access, free access um, through my university to databases like JSTOR um, and all all these places where I could get scholarly articles that described the layout of um, the ports in Paris or described how, uh, like what kind of trade ports there were, but also how did they make their clothing and what kinds of fabrics did they use and what did women use to create gemstones when they were short on cash but wanted the look of gemstones. So there was a lot of research that I did through JSTOR. Um, I also found some great blogs like Party Like It's 60, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, I also watched a lot of reenactments of court dance videos oh <laughs> mm-hmm, starting mm-hmm. for like every two seconds so I could describe the arm movements of people properly wow nobody, and I mean to be fair almost nobody's going to pick up on that in the dancing but I know and I want to make right. sure it's accurate. um and uh I wanted to make sure I think that the bi- the biggest thing for me was that because I'm playing around with time and place and historical details I wanted to make sure that any historical inaccuracy I chose to depict was a choice. It wasn't something that I accidentally did because I didn't know enough about the time period. So any inaccuracy in One for All is intentional. Okay. Can you, okay, so first I have two questions because this is how my brain works. First question is, why do you think it's so important to get it so historically accurate. I know for like in, and with our podcast, we try and like, let everybody know that just because it's one way for one book doesn't mean it's that way for every book, like historical inaccuracies, you know, may not be so important if you're doing a very like distanced fantasy, right? Like I'm pointing at myself right now and being like, please, right? Like, cause that's mm-hmm. kind of my book. It's like inspired by mm-hmm. a period of history in France, but it's not. And oh. Yeah. So there's that. Hey, what's up? Um, but why was it so important for you that it was so historically accurate? And, mm-hmm. you know, what what effect does that have on the book? I know you said, like, people may not pick up on it, but you do. But I have a feeling it does mean something to readers. Can you talk about that? Well, I think that there's a level of authenticity that you get when once you do enough research where you just really know the time period really well. And I think that's one of the reasons why historical fiction authors tend to write at least a few books in the same period of time. Um, 
in, in that the books are set during the same period of time, not that they're writing books at the same time, which oh. I mean, I do try to do that. But um, uh, for example, like my uh, some Amanda McCrina, who um, whose historical fiction novels are also published by FSG BYR. Um, she's written books that happen like within like a 10 year span. Um, and you have a lot of people who will just learn so much about a time period that, I mean, you just want to write so many books about it because you want to be able to use that knowledge because where yeah. else are you to use it? I mean, maybe on Jeopardy, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, a trivia game show, but whomst among us is going to be lucky enough as a writer to randomly happen to get on Jeopardy. Um, right. <laughs> but um, for me, I felt like that there was so much in One for All that was so close to me that I knew was going to be authentic. So the um, chronic illness representation, all the sword fighting, mm-hmm. all the interactions about chronic illness, I knew that all those were going to be authentic. And I felt like it would be a disservice to the book, but also a disservice to readers if I didn't also take the same time and um, just effort, I guess, into yeah. getting the historical details right, um, as I did with everything else. Um, and then there's also part of me that <laughs> feels like, you know, I think that um, marginalized authors are, their work is nitpicked a lot more than mm-hmm. a lot of other authors, and we're not allowed to get away with as much. Mm-hmm. So I knew that going in, writing historic writing historical fantasy like there were going to be people who were you know like there are people who want you to fail so um right so you have to go in and be better it's one of those things like you know that I feel like applies throughout a lot of different things and not just the writing um but uh in terms of that aspect I was like I just want I just want to get it right because I don't want to have to hear anything from anybody (laughs) about how it's an but to be fair um, Elizabeth May, who uh, right, was one of my favorite follows on social media. She's awesome um, and is one of the co-writers of Seven Devils. Um, but uh, she writes a lot about how you were all, as a historical fiction author, she writes historical fiction and historical fantasy, I believe. Um, as an author of those genres, you're always going to have readers who are like, that doesn't sound right. That must be inaccurate. And actually, no. No, it is accurate because we did all the research. Like, you know, there are people like, well, was this vegetable in France at that time? I don't think so. You know, and I'm like, actually, it was. Right. (laughs) But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where, um, one of those things where you just have to, you know, get it as accurate as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. It makes sense, especially when you think about there's a total difference between creating a historical fantasy versus something inspired by a period of time in history and and a country. Like they're two totally different things. And it's it kind of follows, which is where I'm going to get to my next question. I'm really proud of this segue. Um, But I think it kind of follows that whole thing of writing where you have to know the rules to break them and to break them with intention. And I wanted to ask about, you said that with research and doing it so diligently, you said you wanted to be able to like make historical inaccuracies with intention. You wanted to do that intentionally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I'm very curious to see how that manifests in the book. Right. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, well, I shouldn't say obviously, because who knows? I mean, history is written by the victors and tends, that tends to be white men. So who knows? Maybe there were women running around in ball gowns with swords yeah. their legs. And par- I mean, there is there, you know, um, there are you know a few instances of like r- of random um, female duelists, uh, which which is awesome. But um, I knew that. Um, there were elements in that way that I wanted to play with. Um, I think that also, um, there are also elements that I think that ha- I, I needed to make it more, um, I don't want to say palatable, but more, um, more acceptable for a YA audience because I really didn't, because I, when you look back at like the marriage market and you look back at the kinds of matches that were being made, 
a lot of the time, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old girls, they were not being matched up with boys who are their age or are right. older. They're being matched up with men who are a lot older. And I do touch on that in one for all, but I did throw in some younger gentlemen because right. I mean, I, I didn't want it to all be about these gross, you know, age pairings that I yeah. really not approve of. Right. Um, but I also, I mean, and I did, that was very important for me because I also um, was drafting the book right around when Me Too started. Um, mm -hmm. And One for All is very much a book about consent as well. Um, yes, we love so, to yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, and also about what consent means for a chronically ill woman or for a disabled woman versus what it means for for somebody else. Right. Um, and there's lots of discussions that the uh, that the musketeers have in one for all about how, oh, maybe at the time we thought that this was okay, but looking back on it, like that doesn't that wasn't right of this person. Mm. So I mm. think that I wanted to use uh, you know, I was creating a few historical inaccuracies to also to be able to talk about those issues. Um, something else that I also did was that, I mean, listen, I think that it's probably safe to assume that the kings of France were little spoiled, conceited children. But, um, I mean, I kind of took a bit of liberty with his character. <laughs> he's not, he's, I mean, he barely appears in one for all. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of, I, oof, I, I, I did not, I did not uh, do him any favors in terms of, um, my depiction of him uh so i very much wanted to i i wasn't interested in i mean because he i mean he wasn't he wasn't a main character he wasn't a supporting side character i wasn't going to make him as fully flushed out as the other characters because he appears in like one scene or two scenes yeah um but i did just kind i i i imported a few um current views about monarchy into the book um, because I think that it's really impossible to write about monarchies um, in YA or just in, you know, historical and fantasy in general. I think that you have to be thoughtful and you have to be, um, what does it mean to have, you know, a main character who is fighting to uphold a monarchy? Right. 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 Because, and, you know, and at the end of the day, all these girls, they're not, they have different reasons for why they are part of the Musketeers. And none of them are there to uphold the monarchy. That's kind of just a, something that ends up happening be, as, as a result. Right. Um, but I, a lot of the girls, um, some of the girls have more political leanings, have, are more political leaning than others. Uh, some of them are very, um, revolution focused. Some of them are very um, subdued about their opinions and per, you know, in, in public and very vocal in private. Uh, right. So, yeah. So uh, again, ta sorry, tangent, but um, I love it. I think that you know, I I did map a lot of you know modern day um, upset about monarchy. Yeah. Not that there weren't people upset about the monarchy during that time period. Oh, for sure. There were. Uh, but um, I think that it's very difficult to try to think about, to put, to put yourself in the perspective of somebody from that time period thinking about monarchy and not write an entire book about it. Right. It's such, it's such a complex topic. And, for sure. And I think that those books are really important, but I knew that it wasn't, that wasn't what One for All was. Yeah. So I a ton of time to it. No, it sounds like you, you know, obviously like we, we talk on here about how it's like not all in a first draft, but you knew, you knew what you wanted this book to accomplish on many different levels with many different themes and many different messages. And you use that history 
to kind of set this book and, you know, really give it a, not a, I don't want to say the word backdrop because that does a disservice to what you're painting of, you know, every little detail makes it fully fleshed out, but it also makes it fully fleshed out so that your themes, which are modern day, you know, modern day for young adult readers really stick out. And I think that is a wonderful thing. Like that is so layered and complex. I, historical is one of those genres that I think I would even write a contemporary book before I ever <laughs> touched a historical because there's just, so, I would get so lost in the details and I think I would forget what I am trying to accomplish. And I think you did not like, it really sounds like you knew this is what I want to accomplish. And these are how, this is how the research serves me. And this is how it's going to serve my readership. Um, and that's just fantastic. Like that's a level of thinking. I, I can't even comprehend. I think, I think that's something that was helpful for me is that I didn't do all my research at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of historical fiction authors, they will research for two years and then they will write the book. Oh, my sweet mama. And Sorry. That's not, my no, that's not, that was pretty much my reaction when I heard my professors <laughs> say stuff like that or other writers I know say stuff like that. I can't do that. So no. I do research and then I write and I research as I write. And then I do another round of research after, after, you know, I have a draft and then, you know, research is a continuous process for me. I'm researching up until the very last minute. I was researching yeah. up until like copy edits just to make sure everything was correct. Right. I have gotten to the point now where I've learned, like I will let myself go down Wikipedia rabbit holes to learn oh things. My gosh, and yeah. then, uh, right. Like there's something about that. That's like, I just want to know this one thing. And then suddenly you're looking up the, the history of textiles in this corner of France. And you're, you're like, what? my book isn't even about this anymore. And I, like, I've had to learn to like cut myself off. I will put in if it's like, especially if I'm drafting, it's like, we're going to put in, put detail in about food oh, research later. So regimented and so healthy. And oh, I wish I was more like that. <laughs> no, it doesn't stop me from the Wikipedia 2 a.m. rabbit hole, but, yeah. you know, it, it curbs a little bit of it. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I have a lot of name drops in the novel, so some stuff that I did so fun stuff that I did was like I made Portia this huge art nerd I mean Portia is a huge nerd in general like she's so smart like she speaks yeah. all the languages and she um uh but it's also a huge art nerd and like she'll like randomly drop the names of French painters at that time and she'll like make jokes about like the gradient the color difference. oh text. my gosh <laughs> like, because because I'm like this is a way for me to get in all like you know the the rabbit holes that I went down at 2 a.m. Right. Like it's at least they serve this one line. Right. Um, well, I love that diligence. Like I'm, it's not going to waste. You know, I'm like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about um retellings, and yeah. I love a good retelling. I think it is a magic all its own to do a retelling and make it feel fresh and make it feel, you know, an ode to the source material, but also spin it and then give it to this, you know, young adult audience. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that? Because you talk about how it's like not exactly a retelling more as it is a reimagining. Correct. Did I say that? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about like how you map that? Because if nobody has picked up the three Musketeers by Dumas, um, it is a doorstopper of a novel. So enlighten me on this process because I'm daunted. Yeah, to be fair, One for All, if you were to add up all the words that I had to cut, I mean, One for All probably is was well over 200,000 just in terms of like all the the different versions of it and how many words I cut. Um, yeah. So it was a bit of a doorstopper on its own. But, um, <laughs> I think that, Something that I wanted to do is, and I think was very smart of my agent to do when I talked about, because I didn't sign with my agents for one for all. I was on submission with a different, um, I signed with them for a different novel, but ultimately didn't end up selling on submission. Mm -hmm. uh, that I hope finds a home one day because I, I still really love it. But um, right. I, uh, when I, when I first talked about writing this book, 
my agent was like, do not read the Three Musketeers again until after you finish drafting it. Because <laughs> I don't want it to I don't want you to get so bogged down in, you know, mapping page by page by page. Mm. And I think that that was really good advice because I was able to write Tanya's story with my knowledge of the Three Musketeers and then go back and then check it again. But um, I think that uh, something that I really wanted to make sure of is that there's all the the same story elements are there, the, the sense of being an outsider, in the sense of D'Artagnan and Artania coming to Paris and alone in a new city, and it's unfamiliar, and all of a sudden there are these other musketeers, and in Tanya's case, it's this group of girls, and D'Artagnan, and it's this case of, it's this group of men who become these mentors, these friends, these family members. Um, mm. And, but there's also all this political intrigue and I wanted that element too. And so what I ended up doing was that um, one for all in terms of the time period takes place a few years after La Fronde, which is the, um, the French Civil Wars. Um, and uh, the original Three Musketeers takes place around 30 years before, 20 years okay. before. Um, so I didn't want to do the same time period because I felt like I wouldn't have as much freedom to play around with um, the mystery and the ideas. Right. Of, like, who who is you know this who's the uh, person who's planning to kill the Fran king of France? It's like I feel like it would be a little bit too obvious if I used the uh, same time period as. Yeah. Um, so. I set it during that time period um, and kept all those same like heartbeats of the novel. And then once it came to characters other than Tanya, um, I wanted to make it so that the mapping of the characters and their personalities wasn't too literal. Mm. Or in mm -hmm. abstract sense. And I think that the best example of that is that in the Three Musketeers, um, Porthos um is like a very he's he's described as boisterous and loud and that he eats a lot and that he sleeps with a lot of women and like all this stuff. Um and Portia in One for All is ferociously hungry but in an abstract sense, not for food. Like she's hungry for women's rights. She's hungry to prove herself. She's hungry for all these different things. And it shows up on the page how dedicated and ferocious she is and how much she wants. Um, and so I wanted to kind of map it out like that. Um, wow. I love that. Like that, I had my little hand motions of, <laughs> oh my gosh, that, what a, like, what a, again, what a, I'm just continually blown away by your level of attention, like the detail of attention that you have or attention to detail, whatever that phrase is, um, that you really have with these characters, with this world, with the source material, with the research that you can take that. And that right there is something that a young adult, I can already tell that a young adult audience is going to pick up on, like they're going to pick up on that you know, this voracious, like we're, we're hungry for change. We're hungry for women's rights. We're hungry for adventure. We're hungry for whatever. And it's, you know, it's a modern upgrade, I guess not an upgrade, but a modern, you know, upscale of that. And that's so fascinating. Yeah. And I really, I really wanted to make sure that all like the, the girls, my musketeers were their own people, were their own characters. I didn't want them to be, you know, I, I didn't want the mapping to be too obvious from the previous characters onto them. Um, so it's more like you can enjoy one for all without having read the three musketeers. You don't need, need to know anything about the three musketeers yeah. to enjoy one for all. I also really like your phrase. Um, and I want to make sure I bring it back because I want to remember this for the future. The, um, how you talked about it has the heartbeats from the three musketeers, but I love that phrasing. Like it has the heartbeats, but you know, it's the little things that, you know, if somebody happened to, you know, watch the Three Musketeers or they read it or whatever, that they could pick up on little things, right? And little beats and go, oh, I get that. Oh, I get that. Oh, I get that. But it's still very uniquely your own. Mm -hmm. I think that um, something that was important for me was during the editorial process, my editor had asked me to, you know, 
pick out like a sentence or a line or a few lines that she that I felt like were the heart of the novel um that like really encompassed the themes that I was writing about um and it was funny because once I did that I was able to see oh I was like look at how like you know it it, it you know they the heartbeats are the same for the three musketeers and for one for all in terms of I mean obviously I think they're brotherhood versus sisterhood yeah um, and there are some you know some different elements in terms of that sense but um I mean, at the end of the day, there are only so many stories to be told um, in terms of, you know, like how many original stories and plot lines there are. So um, it's not like I could do anything completely new. Right. (laughs) Emily and I just recorded a podcast where we talked about um, rom-coms. We were talking rom-coms, which is, you know, not totally related to this, but related in the sense of people talk about how like romance is romance narratives are formulaic and you know, the idea, like it's just a formula, right. And it's, you know, it's predictable. The ending's always predictable. It's like, well, yeah, duh, but it's how you put the spin on it. That's different. Like, how are you going to write this in your completely unique own voice? Right. Like three musketeers exists, but that doesn't mean that you can't just revamp it that you can't breathe some new life into it you can change it you can pay homage to the original while also saying let's update this for a modern day society let's go and have you know talk about all these important themes in there yeah and also I mean like my gosh I mean what a joy to know the ending when, when you're a reader I mean in COVID times I mean the first like few months Regency romances got me through the first few months of COVID. Right? That was all I read. I would read like one a day or two a day. Yeah. One every two days. And it was I was just flying through them because I was like, you know what? I know exactly what happens at the end of this novel. And it's great. It's like watching The Great British Bake Off. It's wonderful. Hi. That's <laughs> what up. Uh, yep. I, that's it's very like, funny. My book is Great British Bake Off and French inspired. Uh, oh, <laughs> I love it. I'm very excited about that. I I nerded out for a second. Like, hey, what up? That's me. Anyway, continue. I'm very excited about this book now, by the way. Um, (laughs) I also also watched The Great British Bake Off uh, seasons in reverse during COVID because I was like, I'm getting further and further away from the dark period of time. Right. (laughs) Currently our present. Um, (laughs) But um, no, but I I love... um, I love romance novels. Like I think, oh my gosh, Get a Life, Chloe Brown is one of my favorite books ever by Talia Hibbert. Um, and so there's also this element of, you know, well, can it be formulaic if there are certain like perspectives that haven't been told yet in these narratives? That um, oh my gosh, we talk about that all the time. Where it's it's the whole thing on you know Twitter brings it up every now and then where they're like vampires are overdone and it's like well not for some marginalized like for most marginalization like get a life try yeah. or get an unlife I guess get an undead life <laughs> but uh-huh, that's my joke uh <laughs> but for real like we it it seems very unfair to say like this has already been done like even even if somebody looks at you know uh Three Musketeers or you know we had Lauren Blackwood on here with Jane Eyre like there there are a couple of Jane Eyre retellings like it doesn't it doesn't matter. It hasn't been told with this perspective before. Yeah. It brings also, something new. Also, like, The Wide Sargasso Sea is, like, such a famous book. And, mm-hmm. like, it's not, like, I feel like that people just automatically assume that um, retellings or reimaginings can't have literary merit or just merit in general. And I'm, like, you do realize that, like, most stories are retellings of, like, right. Bible stories or Shakespeare or like, you know, the Odyssey or, um, you know, Homer or just, like, it's just, (laughs) that's what all these stories are. Right. When we say, like, nothing, when we say nothing is new, we mean, like, hundreds of years ago, nothing was new. (laughs) Paradise Lost is fan fiction. Sorry. (laughs) It is. It is. is. That is a quote to support this episode oh I can't wait I'm gonna use that to advertise this episode Paradise Lost is fan fiction and and to be fair uh I love fan fiction so I mean 
I probably love fan fiction more than I love Paradise Lost. <laughs> As somebody who was forced to read it uh, for their English major in college. Yep. Um, Same, hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, everything's a retelling. Everything's right. Um, was it when we talk about your book and retellings, I'm very curious because we had like uh, I mentioned Lauren Blackwood and within these wicked walls, mm-hmm. hers was very much not hers was a retelling reimagining, but it was like it had the homages to the original Jane Eyre. So it was like if you, you know, if you're familiar with Jane Eyre, it has the, you know, the fire and you're like, ah, there it is. But yeah. it's not that. And then it has the woman in the attic, but it's not that, right? Like constantly it's shades of it for Mm -hmm. your book. Is it shades of it plot wise? Is it more like true to the original? Like, I just want to know where might that fall on the spectrum? It's a little difficult to say because I don't want to give anything away. For sure. Right. Um, But I definitely think that the, plot beats are the same or not the same but they're very similar uh-huh. um readers who love the three musketeers will recognize a good number of things in it there are also lots of little fun easter eggs um in the novel like there's one time in which um for example um um debats or deba um is um the last name of the D'Artagnan whom the D'Artagnan character was based upon. So the real person. Oh, wow. So I brought, so I brought that name in for Tanya um, for her last name. And then her father, who is a retired musketeer, um, like there's a joke about him, like, you know, dueling like a, I think it's three people with his left hand. And that's like, uh-huh. a, it's in the three musketeers with D'Artagnan. Yeah. You know, people's left hand, and I mean, there are also lots of fun Easter eggs to like the Princess Bride and Jane Eyre, and like the Pride and Prejudice, like 2004-2005 movie edition. Hi, <laughs> vapid fan of all of those. Thank yeah. you. Um, but um, so it's not, it's not complete. It should not be completely disfamiliar, um, or unfamiliar. Um, I, I, it, it's definitely its own story. Um, but. And I would like to think that there are twists that people won't see coming, or if they do see it coming, I mean, one of the things about twists, in my opinion, is that as a as an author, it's very difficult for me to ever be surprised or to ever yeah. what's coming because if you're if the writer is good, we as readers should be able to predict at least the possibility, yes, of the outcome. Um, which is why all my friends wa- hated watching Game of Thrones with me. Cause they're like, wow, can you believe it? I'm like, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I saw this coming. It was one of the possible four plot, plot lines. I right. diverged there. Like, Lily, you're not fun to watch TV shows with. I'm like, yes, welcome to my brain. <laughs> um, yep. But um, I think that, um, you know, I, readers readers will either be surprised by the twist or they will hopefully have seen the the seeds of it coming um and, and to be fair there's multiple twists in the book so yeah say twist I think, instead of twist yeah we go back to like rom-coms right where we're talking about the predictable ending and I think that is a thing with storytelling is that it, just because your reader can guess the ending of something doesn't mean it's bad writing at all it actually means it's you know it can be fairly it's good writing because hopefully you left enough breadcrumbs right you don't want them to predict it at the very beginning but you know whenever they're like haha I knew it like that when you can get that reaction of I knew it I knew this was the thing you then you did your job of setting out those breadcrumbs and you you followed the story structure that is for whatever genre you're trying to write in so if you're writing a mystery thriller I definitely am going to expect the best friend turning on them. I'm going to expect all these other different tropes. Like, okay, it's going to either going to be this trope or it's this trope. And I think it's going to be this trope because of, you know, you start filling in the details and that's, that's good writing. That's, you know, that's necessary writing, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, one of my favorite authors who does this so well is June Her, um, for The Sounds of Bones and The Red Palace most recently. Um, she does such a good job of laying breadcrumbs, but also just creating so many possible suspects that even though you've likely predicted the person right. is behind it all or the people who are behind it all, um, you still feel good about the ending because there were so many twists and turns and possibilities. Right. Um, and really quickly before I like lose my tangent here, um, we were talking about the pacing of mm -hmm. your, like the plot beats of your book. Yeah. Right. And one thing we talked about earlier that I would really love to touch on here because it's something I've never heard of before and I'm excited to learn even more. Um, can you talk about the pacing in your book and really specifically the pacing idea that you had, not that you had, but that you talked about before this podcast yeah. began? So, and this is actually relevant. It's an idea that I was thinking a lot about. Um, for my the adult literary fiction novel that I'm working on, and it's what I worked on at my master's program. Um, there is a theory called Crip Time Theory by Allison Keeper, which uh, kind of you know summed up is the is the idea that um, time, both in a literal and figurative sense, is experienced differently by disabled and chronically ill individuals um, than it is by non-disabled and non-chronically ill individuals. Um, and when I first read that theoretical text and that and that essay, um, which is in, initially in the book, I believe, Feminist Queer, um, or Feminist Queer Crip, I always mistake the order. Um, yeah. It's those three words, that title. <laughs> um, but um, I was just, I was just floored because you know, you know, we always hear people yelling, time is a construct, you know, it's not real. But uh, I think that for chronically ill individuals, we spend so much time in waiting rooms and doctor's offices, um, or we spend a lot of time in bed, or we spend a lot of time with symptoms. So time kind of expands and flexes and changes, and it, it kind of changes how you think about the progression forward because things aren't necessarily progressing linearly, linearly yeah. um, or chronologically. So um, a lot of the time, you know, you redefine um, or you define, you know, your day by the places that you okay. rather than necessarily by time. So it's okay. like, okay, well, today I was in bed or I also, and I also managed to go to the shower and I used, you know, some spoons to take a shower, use some energy to take a shower and I went right. to the doctor's office. But, you know, I think that, you know, when you, once you spend two or three hours waiting in a doctor's office, because your doctor is, you know, you know, was called off to do some random surgery and you're still waiting there. Um, you start to think about things, you, you start to measure things differently. Yeah. And so. One of the things that I've always been really interested in is how to apply that sense to fiction and mm -hmm. if it can be applied to fiction. Um, it can be. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be effective for all readers yeah. and non-disabled readers. So, for example, um, I was constantly cutting down the first third or so of my novel to get the mm -hmm. pace. Better. But there's a reason why uh, the pacing of the beginning of One for All is slower and then it speeds up. And it's because Tanya's chronic illness symptoms are worse towards the beginning of the novel. Uh -huh. But she experiences time differently at the beginning of the novel than she does than she does towards the end. And for example, um, this can also be thought about if for, for people who are having a difficult time imagining this. Um, something that I think that most non-disabled or non-chronically ill people would get is um, if you fill up your day with things, it goes by more quickly than if you don't. That yeah. just is just a general rule. Um, and if you're an extrovert, usually 
you know, seeing people or hanging out with people, your day will go by more quickly if you if you have a, you know, a hangout with a friend or you're talking to yeah. a friend. The day will usually go by more quickly. Whereas if you're sitting as an extrovert home alone and you're just kind of waiting and sitting there for the entire day, that day is going to feel a lot longer. It's going the time is going to feel a lot longer. I mean, it's you know the same thing as like when we're little kids when we're little kids waiting for our birthday. Like, you know, yeah. like week is always like, oh, it's taking so long. Um right. actually, you know, it's the same exact measurement of time that it's always been. Um so that analogy for non for non-disabled non-credit um so something that I knew that I wanted to keep in one for all was that sense of time and that sense of pacing because I didn't feel like I could be authentic to my own experience or the experience of chronically ill individuals by taking it out and I know that it's not not everybody's a fan and that um you know, pacing is a very controversial. I mean, it's funny to say that out loud. I'm like, God, I sound like such a nerd. We're all such nerds. Pacing is a controversial. Listen, topic. you're on basic oh. pitches. We define nerd of writing world. Like this oh. is my like. I'm so fascinated. I'm here. So yes, pacing is a controversial topic. <laughs> and, and you know, so much important and you know, very very important. I, I would highly encourage people to read about this. Um, but Siran um, Zhao, uh, I believe they did a video, I think it was a video uh-huh. about the difference in pacing in old Chinese texts and yes. just in general Eastern texts versus Western modern texts and how, you know, the way that we can, cons- we, the way that we think a good novel and good in qu- quotation marks, a good novel is constructed or paced is a very Western modern sense of, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really take into account um, perspectives of people who are not in the West um, or for example, are not chronically ill and not disabled or um, aren't white or aren't like there's right. all these different ways and like in different traditions. So if we talk about um if we talk about like old um, Indian texts, or we talk about, um, um, as I was mentioning before, old Chinese texts and how the pacing is different. And you wouldn't say that that pacing is bad. It's just yeah. different. <laughs> it's yeah. different because it reflects a different experience and a different worldview. And right. I think that once we start to kind of let go of this idea of the pacing is off or the pacing like why do you feel like the pacing is off right and that's I think that becoming an author has also made me much more generous as a reader um because if I don't if I don't agree with an with a choice that's made in a book like for example like why are we spending so much time in this location why is this scene moving so slowly or why is the scene moving so quickly it's my first response isn't oh, this author isn't doing their job properly. It's lots of people thought about this decision and made this decision. It went through the writer, it went through the editor, it went through all these different copy editors. So obviously there's something that I'm missing. Mm -hmm. So what, how, in my perspective, in my worldview, like what am I missing in order to understand Mm -hmm. why decisions were made? And once you free yourself up to that, reading is a lot more enjoyable. (laughs) That is, that it's so funny. Like this is something that's been on my heart recently is, you know, I am very much a person of, I like to, I like to learn as much as I can um, about any given topic and about people in general. I love to learn. I mean, anything you want to sit down and talk to me about like knitting or like whatever it may be, I'm here and I'm ready to listen. Like, tell me about your great grandma who invented this stitch. I don't know, like whatever it is. And I think there is so much more enjoyment when you like learn those things, when you come up to those things. Like I am so much at this point in my life where I will watch a movie or I will watch a TV show that's supposed to be fantastic, wonderful. Everybody loves it. And I go, oh, this wasn't meant for me. Mm -hmm. This is meant for a different audience. And I am so glad that they love it. 
hooray, let me see, like, okay, the pacing is fast because that's what this generation likes or whatever it may be. And I kind of like to analyze it at that point, like, okay, why is it meant for this group and not for me? And that becomes a fun learning opportunity. And it brings so much more to the table, right? Like it, it's not just another, you know, Mike, I, I will point out my own book for the sake of this. My book is very much a fast paced fantasy, romantic fantasy. It is quick. It is, but it is a quiet fantasy. Um, but it is that quick, fast paced storytelling. It's just another one, right? Whereas you get something like this, where you slow it down, you look at this, like, why is this person making this choices? Is this for, you know, maybe I didn't enjoy the pacing, but I can respect what it was doing, you know, that kind of thing, which I think is fantastic. Fantastic. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, for example, and you know, I'm probably going to like get so much hate mail over this, but I don't enjoy the great Gatsby. Like, I don't like the great Gatsby. <laughs> it's okay. Um, Hi. And, like, it's my mom's favorite book. So, I mean, we have gotten into like, well, we haven't gotten into many an argument because she, she'll, she just runs away. She just runs away because <laughs> she just knows it's not going to go well. Um, but I can appreciate it and respect it as an author because that book sets out to accomplish a goal and it accomplishes that goal. Do I enjoy right? about those characters? No. No. Do I, respect, do I respect what the author did and the choices? Yes. Um, and for those listening, Wild and Wicked Things by Francesca May is a uh, 1920s inspired historical fantasy, um, um, WLW fantasy novel that's coming out in three days. And it's a retelling of The Great Gatsby. And uh, it's wonderful. Why haven't I heard of this? And, and I, where have I been? Where have yeah, I been? It's, it's, it's adult, um, but it's, it's so genius. Um, like the shirt throwing scene interpretation in this I'm book losing is my mind. <laughs> so the way that the author talks about, like uses it as a way to discuss identity is just like mind blowing. So, and I enjoyed that book, but even though I didn't enjoy the great Gatsby. So I'd like to think that people who didn't enjoy the three musketeers could also enjoy one for all. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, and, th and there's the back, and then we've come full circle. And we've come <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. I love, I love talking to people who understand me and are me in a sense of <laughs> we're going to go off on this tangent. Where were we to begin with? We don't know, but we found something cool <laughs> along the way. <laughs> so is there anything else you would like to talk about before we do the sign off? Anything else you'd like to shout out? I'm going to make sure that your book and your website and your link tree and your Twitter and all of that stuff is in the show notes. Um, I don't think, I, I mean, thank you for having me. I'm not sure if there's anything else to say. Um, the one thing that I've been telling people is that, you know, I get asked every day if there will be a one for all sequel. Um, and I would love to write one, but it's not up to me. It's yeah. up to my publisher. So, uh, if people would like a one for all sequel, please buy one for all, recommend it to your friends, go rate it on, uh, the Bert, the Amazon site, who, um, Barnes and Noble, um, Waterstones, um, since it's going to, since the UK edition is coming out next year, um, yes. you know, go and rate it everywhere you can buy yes. a copy as a gift, you know, recommend it to your local library. There's so many different ways that you can help support authors and me specifically in this case right. and getting a sequel that don't involve money. So right. if you're like, I can't buy a copy of One for All, then put it, you know, request a hold at your local library. Do it. Groups, yeah, do whatever you can. We like to invite people to pitch their book badly. And that is as boring as you possibly, possibly, possibly can. Like um, my book is very much ambitious girl teams up with sad boy to bake some shit. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I, I think it's difficult for me because whenever I, I pitch my book badly, people are like, oh, but that's really good. See, that's the point. That's the point is you pitch it badly and you're like, that's great. Yeah, because I'm always like a girl has a sword. She is a stabby girl. 
she goes to find other stabby girls with swords. The swords of the girls go stab stab, and that's how Sisterhood of the Stab Stab came to be. Um, but that's... <laughs> but um, but like I'm like, oh god, like that's just it's just me saying swords, 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 swords all over. I mean, when you see over when you again. hear that and look at your book cover. Uh, it makes sense. Oh my gosh, that is wonderful. Okay, that's probably one of the best bad pitches we've ever had. <laughs> I love it so much. It's so good. They're good every time, but that one, my heart is very for listening to another episode of basic pitches we super 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 appreciate it and we also appreciate lily Lanoff coming by and talking to us about her book all for one you can get that wherever books are sold you can also request it at your local library that really helps authors out tweet about it on twitter shout about it on instagram this book needs to be in readers hands all over the place and i think that's it i'll see you next time bye pitches bye